This is They Create Worlds, episode 127, The Dreams of Sega. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. We talked about them in the long, long ago. We championed them as they fought their rival, Nintendo. But now we get to see them in their later years, as they dream of things. The dreams of Sega, as they dream of things like the Dreamcast and those other things. Or, in a way, more like the nightmares of Sega, though, you know, that doesn't make nearly as good a pun. You know, I think probably a lot of our listeners are aware of the downfall of Sega in the latter half of the 1990s. Certainly, at the very least, they're aware that Sega made hardware and now Sega doesn't make hardware, which uh, pretty much speaks for itself in terms of companies and downfalls. There's actually very little discussion about why this happened in terms of the management in Japan. Most of the information that we have on this comes purely from the American side. It comes from Tom Kalinske, Bernie Stolar, Peter Moore, who kind of back-to-back-to-back were presidents of Sega of America in the U.S. There was a Japanese guy in charge briefly, which is very germane to our story. We'll get to that, too. But it's mostly the three American guys and their subordinates that have told the story in English-language sources. It's mostly kind of been focused on the hardware and on, you know, this hardware had these deficiencies, this hardware had these deficiencies. But there's a lot of misinformation about the hardware around. There's a whole lot of one-sided bias on what was going on at Sega corporate running around. Well-intentioned bias. It's just the American executives don't always have the full story. So there's really a rather warped view of what exactly was going on at the company in this period of time and why it ended up failing so spectacularly. While I'm sure we don't have the full story either because Japanese sources are still not the easiest to come by, Japanese language sources or uh, Japanese individuals speaking in English, there are several sources that have come to light more recently and even some just newspaper articles from way back in the day in English-language newspapers that have never really been examined, that when you put them all together, really pieces together a fascinating story of political intrigue at the highest levels of Sega that really drove this very bad situation uh, in combination with market forces that were kind of out of the company's control. So that's what we're going to talk about today. It's, it's not going to be so much about the hardware itself or the games but about corporate machinations and intrigue. A lot more focused on the company aspects as opposed to the people, the designers, the games, and so on. Much more focused on how the company management dropped the ball. Partially about how management dropped the ball, but also just about how management was at war with itself. But yeah, definitely that side of things is going to be our focus more so than games and designers. And hardware plays a role a little bit. Someday we may do more in-depth episodes on the creation of Sega hardware, but that's not what this is. This isn't the story of the Dreamcast or the story of the Saturn, but kind of how the stories of those consoles were shaped by all of this other stuff that was going on at Sega. 
Now, I know we've said a lot of things in the past about Sega, and we've kind of had the lead up here of the history that we've covered so far dealing with the fight between Nintendo and Sega with the whole lead up to the Sega Saturn. Is that where we're planning to start off? That's exactly where we're going to be starting off. We do just need to set the stage with a few personalities here. We're not going to go over the whole history of Sega again. We've done multiple episodes of that, and then we did our three-part console war episode that really delved into the Nintendo-Sega battle. So we don't need to retread that ground. But there are some key personalities that are going to be kicking off our entire story here, and so we've got to get them on the table. First of all, we have to remember that the CEO of Sega Enterprises, the parent company in Japan, is a gentleman by the name of Hayao Nakayama. We've gone into Nakayama's origins before. We don't need to do that again. We do need to remember that Nakayama is a man who came up through the coin-op industry, and his orientation towards sales and marketing was very much born out of his experience in the coin-op industry. That was always the area he was most comfortable in. It was the area of his first interest. Nakayama was a true domineering personality. One of these kind of stereotypical Japanese samurai executives that demanded absolute loyalty and wielded absolute control over the company. Even though Nakayama-san was not the individual who established Sega, that was all sorts of Americans in a very convoluted web that we won't go into here, Nakayama has been the dominant force in sales, marketing, R&D, ever since joining the company in 1979, and he has been president of the company since 1983. By this time, he's been in charge for over a decade. He is very clearly the dominant personality. He is very direct. He is very temperamental. He will tell you what to do. He will tell you how he wants it done. And if it doesn't happen, he will scream at you. He was known for screaming at employees. There are even reports that he may have on occasion physically assaulted employees. Not in a put them in the hospital kind of way, not in a throwing heavy objects at their head kind of way, but there are reports, and they are reports, so it could be inaccurate, that he even at times may have laid hands on employees in some way. But even if that never happened, he was definitely known for tirades and screaming when he was upset about something. It's important to know that at the period of time that our story starts, which is kind of 1993-1994, Sega, even though it is a company that has grown rapidly in the last few years, mostly on the back of the success of its American office, of its American sales, is still run almost like a startup. Even though this is a company that has existed since 1960 and has various forms of precursor companies that go back a decade before that, In the early 1990s, it is still very much run similar to a startup, by which I mean you don't have a broad executive base. You don't have a lot of empowered department heads. You have one guy at the top who is basically running everything. That is Hayao Nakayama. Not that there isn't a VP of this and a VP of that. It's really still all tied up in the boss. The boss is Nakayama-san. It seems to me that he's not doing so much delegation 
and sending off tasks to underlings. Therefore, he has his hands in all sorts of aspects of the company. Every decision has to go through him. That obviously creates a choke point that's going to cause every decision or major thing to be slowed down for decisions that need to be done for the company. That's a bottleneck. Right. Now, we also have to remember, through all of the convoluted Sega history, and we can put some of these past episodes in the show notes, that Sega Enterprises Limited, this Sega company that we're talking about, is not a wholly independent company. It is a subsidiary of CSK, Computer Services Corporation, a Japanese company that specializes in creating custom software solutions for business clients. Computer Services Corporation was founded by and is still run by its president, Isao Okawa, who is in his 60s by the mid-90s. He founded the company way back in the 60s, 1962, I believe. In 1984, he purchased Sega Enterprises Limited from Gulf and Western, which we may remember up until that time was the parent company of Sega, for more convoluted reasons that you can visit past episodes if you want to know all about it. So Isao Okawa is the chairman of the board of Sega Enterprises Limited. He is also the largest stockholder in Sega Enterprises Limited. CSK is a major stockholder in Sega Enterprises Limited. Even though CSK Corporation only intermittently in these first decade or so has become directly involved in the affairs of Sega, there is technically a boss on top of the boss of Sega Enterprises. Ayana Nakayama-san is the CEO of Sega Enterprises Limited. Isao Okawa is the chairman, and his company owns the largest amount of shares in the company Sega Enterprises Limited. From all accounts that we have seen in the, in the first decade or so of this relationship, it doesn't seem like Okawa necessarily was directly too involved in the day-to-day running of Sega. There are reports, Bruce Lowry, for instance, remembers having to run some things by him when they were getting ready to launch the Master System. Kalinsky, Tom Kalinsky and Michael Katz, both of them who were presidents of Sega of America in the early 90s, don't remember really ever having anything to do with him. So Okawa-san has immense influence, but it doesn't appear like at this point he's wielded it very much. Spoiler alert, that's going to change. Really? (laughs) So these are our two primary personalities in Japan at the start of our story. You have two other entities. I mean, they have other global subsidiaries as well, but they have two other entities of significance. Sega of America is, of course, the one that is going to be uh, familiar to a lot of our listeners as the company that launched the uh, Sega Genesis in the United States and represented one of the places where Sega had its greatest success in the early 90s. At this time, Sega of America is run by Tom Kalinske, whom we have talked about before. He came not directly from Mattel, but he had been at Mattel, then he'd been at Matchbox. He was credited with a lot of the success that the company had in building its North American market share through strong marketing campaigns, through the good relationships he had with retailers, 
because of his long-time tenure in the toy industry. Even though he's not the one that launched the Genesis, Mike Katz was in charge then, and he laid the groundwork for a few of the things that were to come. Kalinske is the one that is given most of the credit. Now, as CEO in America, he has a couple of different bosses as well. Hayao Nakayama is, of course, the CEO of the parent company, Sega Enterprises Limited. He is also the co-chairman of the board of Sega of America, which is a wholly owned subsidiary, but it's incorporated as well and it has its own board. Nakayama is co-chairman with another gentleman, David Rosen. David Rosen, uh, people may recall from our convoluted history of Sega episodes, is the founder of Rosen Enterprises, which merged with Nihon Goraku Busan in 1965 to form the modern Sega Enterprises Limited. He then ran the company, then its parent company, Sega Inc. If you want to know why there's a Sega Inc. and a Sega Limited, go to our other episodes. Not getting into it. But he ran Sega Inc. in America. Then he stepped down. Uh, He retired about 1982, 1983. Then after the company had problems, he came out of retirement, worked with Nakayama to get Okawa to buy the company. Then he took up residence in Beverly Hills, at his house in Beverly Hills in L.A., and took semi-responsibility for looking after the American operations. David Rosen never ran the day-to-day of American operations of the CSK version of Sega Enterprises, but he was always co-chairman, and the people in charge of the arcade and home game subsidiaries of Sega in the United States would consult with him on like a bi-weekly basis, and he kind of kept an eye on things. Rosen and Nakayama kind of had a weird love-hate relationship with each other. Now, Rosen is the person that brought Nakayama into Sega in the first place. Rosen wanted Nakayama in the company to run its Japanese operations back in 1979. They were friends, but they were also kind of rivals. We don't have a lot of information on this, but Blake Harris's book, Console Wars, even though it has some faults to it, does a very good job of articulating the fact that there's this kind of weird rivalry between Rosen and Nakayama. Because I read that book, I asked Mike Katz about this as well, and he said, yeah, that was definitely there, because, see, Mike Katz had been a Rosen hire. David Rosen hired Michael Katz to run Sega of America. Part of the reason that Katz ends up getting forced out in favor of Kalinsky is because Kalinsky is Nakayama's guy. Nakayama wants his own guy there. So you've got this weird kind of love-hate relationship going on between Rosen and Nakayama, who kind of jointly keep an eye on the U.S. branch, though Rosen's ultimate power in the company is limited. He has a lot of moral (laughs) superiority, I guess. That's probably not quite the right term. A lot of moral standing, though, because he is the guy that forged this company, Sega Enterprises Limited, in the first place. So that's America. Then you also have Sega Europe, which by this time is run by Nick Alexander. Sega Europe is its own convoluted thing. We haven't done an episode on Sega Europe. I wouldn't say I have enough sources to do a good episode on Sega Europe right now, so it could be a long time before we ever do one. But Sega Europe came about essentially as a merger of a couple of different companies. Virgin Games, an offshoot of uh, Richard Branson's company, merged with Mastertronic, which had Sega distribution rights in certain parts of Europe. 
So Virgin bought them to have that, and then they had the distribution through most of Western Europe, and then Sega wanted to bring that in-house, so they kind of yanked certain people and assets out of Virgin Mastertronic and turned that into Sega Europe. Nick Alexander is running that operation in conjunction with Frank Herman, who was one of the founders of Mastertronic. There is no part of Sega that does not have a ridiculously convoluted corporate history, Jeffrey. Let me tell you. I don't know about some of our <laughs> listeners here, but I'm just trying to follow all of this, and I feel like we need to have a bunch of colored string, push pins, and a flowchart to fully understand what the heck is going on. <laughs> exactly. And, and our previous episodes will help with some of that. As for the rest of it, if not all of it sunk in at the very beginning here, we're going to be coming back to a lot of these people over and over and over again over the, the rest of the course of the episode. So it'll probably start to kind of fit together a little better as we go along. Sega Europe has been pretty successful as well. They took a little longer to ramp up to that success than Sega of America did, only because the console market is only really starting to get seriously going in Europe at this time. Because Sega kind of brought all of Western Europe together under one organization much more quickly and efficiently than Nintendo did. Sega had a real opportunity to hit the ground running in Europe and in uh, many parts of Western Europe did much better than Nintendo. That's kind of where we stand in 1993, which is when Sega reaches the height of its power and influence. It has just snatched the market away pretty decisively from Nintendo in the United States, based in large part on the success of Mortal Kombat on the system, which uh, we may recall from previous our console war episodes. Mortal Kombat appeared on both Sega and Nintendo systems, but Nintendo insisted that the blood be changed to gray sweat and that the fatalities be removed, whereas Sega allowed that stuff to stay in. They technically didn't have it initialized, but you could put in a cheat code that, of course, they then published far and wide in every magazine known to man so that everybody would have the cheat code that would allow you to unlock the blood and fatalities. 1993 is a phenomenally successful year for the company in the United States. They are powerful in Europe, particularly in the United Kingdom. They are on top of the world. And at this point, Hayao Nakayama has a new ultimate goal for the company to basically take on Disneyland, to become the new Disney. Why would he do that? Because Nakayama comes out of, remember, location-based entertainment. He comes out of the arcade first and foremost. That's his area of comfort. With the rise of virtual reality, not just virtual reality in the sense of putting one of those crazy headsets and those crazy gloves on, you know, trying to dodge pterodactyls, but also virtual reality in the sense of more immersive simulators that'll move back and forth and up and down and make you feel like you're actually flying out there somewhere, that kind of thing, or driving or whatever. He sees an opportunity to create a new kind of theme park that is more compact and is based entirely on video game technology, VR technology, video game style ride technology. He's going to start opening these massive kind of amusement park video game arcade hybrids, first in Japan and then hopefully in the rest of the world. 
And in fact, the first one opens in Yokohama in 1994 under the name Joypolis. That's joy, the word joy, J-O-Y, and then polis, P-O-L-I-S, Joypolis. This is going to be Sega's crowning achievement. They're strong in the arcade, and this is going to bring them into amusement parks. It's going to make them the next Disney. The problem is opening these Joypolis centers is going to take lots and lots of money. The estimates are 40 to $50 million per location that they open to develop these locations, and he wants to deploy dozens of them. That is going to rip through reserve capital very quickly. Exactly. And at this exact same moment, the company is beginning to hit some major problems with its cash flow. The story of Sega of America, as it is usually told in books like Stephen Ken's Altman History of Video Games, or even more uh, pronounced in Blake Harris's Console War, is told as the story of the mighty underdog Sega and its wily president, CEO Tom Kalinske, how they use all sorts of clever marketing ploys to make Sega edgy and cool and hip, to capture an older teenage audience and steal away market share from Nintendo, going from having just 5 to 10% of the market at the time Genesis launched, all the way to about 55% of the market by the time the, the smoke had cleared in 1993 and dethroned Nintendo. It's the story of brilliance and determination and grit. There's one thing that that story leaves out, even though Tom Kalinske and his people deserve a lot of credit for taking over a market from Nintendo that nobody thought could ever be cracked. Launching a console and marketing a console takes a lot of money. The kind of advertising that Sega of America was doing takes a whole lot of money. By the end of 1993, beginning of 1994, Sega of America is essentially just breaking even. They're not losing money, but they're breaking even. And it's just because doing all this stuff is so expensive. Meanwhile, Europe has become a disaster, an absolute disaster. A recession has started in Europe. Because of this recession, sales of game systems are down. Because sales of game systems are down, Nintendo and Sega get into a really ugly price war with each other to try to capture what sales they can. Because of that price war, the systems are discounted so much that they're not making money. By the beginning of 1994, Sega Europe is in the red. Sega of America is breaking even. Sega Europe is in the red. Then, to make things even worse, this is a period of time when the yen is strengthening against the dollar and against... European currencies like the pound and, and the Deutsche Mark, etc., is strengthening like crazy. I was always told that strengthening my home country's currency was a good thing. Strengthening your home country's currency is a good thing when you operate entirely within your home country. It's a bad thing when you make the majority of your money by exporting your product to other countries. Ah, that makes sense. Which is what Sega does. Because you can't rejigger the prices. You can't just suddenly charge more for a Sega Genesis in the United States just because of this situation. But because the yen is becoming stronger, those dollars people are spending on games and game consoles in the United States 
when they're converted back to yen in Japan, where they're located, where they're based, those dollars don't get you as much yen as they used to. They're losing money in currency transactions. Because instead of, and these are just completely made up numbers, I'm not going to look up the historical exchange rates, because if before $1 had been worth 100 yen, but now $1 is worth only 50 yen, then in your currency conversion, even though you haven't changed the prices of what you're doing in the U.S., in your currency conversions then, you are losing 50 yen on every dollar. Uh, just because of currency conversion transactions, just because of what you lose in the market. Losing money like that is bad. Yeah. So Nakayama is embarking on this bold new phase of expansion with Sega to get into these theme parks, to take the arcade side of the company to the next level, pun intended for a change. At the same time, there are two big, strong stalwart sources of revenue are starting to collapse. Sega of America is still doing okay, but it's only breaking even. Sega Europe is doing really poorly. In this period, Kalinsky has talked a lot about how it felt like he was given less independence in the United States. It felt like people in Japan were going behind his back, were not always supportive of what he was doing. You know, he he's put forth his own theories for why that is, uh, that maybe the Japanese staff were becoming jealous because America was doing so well and Nakayama was telling them, why can't you do as well as the Americans do? And so then they would, out of their jealousy, do all sorts of backbiting. Some of that may have been going on, but there's also just the very simple fact that the financial situation in these other markets is no longer tenable. If the company is going to realize its ambitions at home and in the arcade where they're about to spend a lot of money, they can't necessarily allow the North American operation to do all of the stuff that it had been doing in the past, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. We have the American branch proffering up everyone else. You have Europe failing, and you have to spend more and more money from America in order to proffer up Europe. Then the money that's coming back to Japan is not having as big of a bang for the buck, as one would say. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to demand more and more profit out of the American branch, and that is just causing problems all over the place. Exactly. And, and some of this is speculation on my part, some of it's stuff that you see in, in the reports, but it's definitely a fact that the international subsidiaries were not bringing in as much money. The yen was a major problem, and this was all at the exact moment that the company was looking to do massive expansion into new areas of entertainment. A couple of other things were going on. First of all, again, Nakayama's first love and first area of expertise was coin-op. In coin-op, technology is always king. And this is kind of key to understanding Sega. We talked about this a little bit in our Console Wars episodes. They went peripheral crazy. They did the Sega CD. Then they did the 32X. Then you could create a tower of power by putting them all together into one thing, which I basically just said to give you an excuse to, to whip out your uh, tower of power video again. You know, a lot of this was going on because in the arcade, if your competitors are catching up to you, you put out a new board or you put out a fancy new control scheme or you change the technology in some way to make your games more desirable than the other guys. So this is a period when 
there were a lot of new challengers on the horizon. The Atari Jaguar was coming, which ended up being a disaster, but it was a move towards a quote-unquote next-generation hardware, so to counter that, they throw out the 32X, which, you know, was an utter failure. Multimedia is coming, and uh, they believe strongly in multimedia, so we have to put a Sega CD out there. Our other companies are putting CD players out there. We need to put a CD peripheral out there, so they put the Sega CD out there, and while it's not quite as big a disaster as the 32X, it's a disaster. They're starting to get pulled down by all of this hardware stuff that's going on as well, because they're developing expensive new hardware and it's not going anywhere, particularly the 32X, which... They were able to get a lot of retailers to buy into it just because of the previous success they'd had with Mega Drive slash Genesis. But then consumers (laughs) wanted absolutely nothing to do with it, and it just sank in the market. That also lost them some money. Then the other thing that's going on is Sega in Japan is changing. Now that Sega has grown so much, it was a company that in 1989 had worldwide sales of $800 million. Now, by the end of 1983, is a company with $3.6 billion in sales. It has grown absolutely massively. There's finally a need to kind of decisively bring other managers into the company. It can't just be Nakayama yelling and screaming at everybody anymore. There has to be some other people in the room in middle management. So for the first time, really ever, Nakayama starts bringing in people as middle managers, and he has to bring them in from outside the company. Particularly in this time period, the concept of headhunting executive staff from other companies is very frowned upon in Japan. Japan has a very strong lifetime employment culture, and the idea is you join a company, and then that is your company forever and ever. You don't go someplace else, and another company doesn't try to lure you to their company. SAG is already an unusual company with a lot of inherited Western culture, just because uh, the company was originally founded by Americans. Nakayama, we may remember, uh, got his start in the business working for a couple of Lithuanian Jews, because a lot of that early coin-op business, even that wasn't American, was owned by... Jewish entrepreneurs, it wasn't owned by native Japanese. So Nakayama's already been steeped in business cultures that aren't strictly Japanese for much of his professional life. Because he has been such a domineering personality within his company, there really isn't anyone that he can promote to greater levels of responsibility within the company itself. So he has to go outside the company to bring new people in that can uh, help the company grow and prosper. He makes a few important hires in this time period. He starts really in 1992 as the company's starting to get big. He starts bringing in kind of his first senior management people that are going to help him run the company. There's already one individual within the company that kind of fits this bill by the name of Takuzo Komai, who actually came from Nintendo (laughs) back in the early 1980s. Basically, Komai had been a Nintendo executive that was deeply involved in their video game efforts, got into a huge conflict with Hiroshi Yamauchi when Yamauchi decided to pull out of Coinop because Komai thought that even though they were getting more involved in the home, they should remain in Coinop as well. So he ends up leaving Nintendo, and Nakayama snaps him right up. 
Komai uh, becomes a representative director of Sega and is their primary executive that spearheads their move into consoles. He's uh, kind of looked over a lot of that side of things ever since. There's already kind of one guy in, but then he brings in a few more guys. He brings in a guy named uh, Sokichi Uehara, who had been a senior managing director at Tomy, which is a very important Japanese toy company that has in the past been heavily involved in electronic games and electronic toys. He brings in a fellow by the name of Mitsuo Wachi, who was a director at a retail chain, a grocery chain, Ito Yokado Company, which is Japan's most profitable retail chain. Wachi is brought in specifically to develop this Joypolis concept and this uh, VR arcade concept. He also brings in some other middle managers from Sony, Toshiba, IBM, companies like that to fill out his executive staff. Then finally, the crown jewel of all the people he brings in is the so-called Prince of Honda, Shoichiro Irimajiri. So we're going to spend a minute on Irimajiri. Irimajiri was known as the Prince of Honda because he was very instrumental in the rise of Honda into a global automotive powerhouse. He was not the founder of the company. He was not the primary visionary of the company. That would be Sochiro Honda himself, the founder and namesake of the company. Irimajiri was very important in their branching out from being just a motorcycle company into being a major automotive company. He ran Honda US for a while and was responsible for putting together what was essentially the first successful Japanese automotive factory in the United States, a Honda factory that was opened in Ohio. That was kind of the beginning of the Japanese takeover, quite frankly, of the American automobile industry. Iri Majiri was a big part of that. He was uh, very involved in a lot of their R&D efforts. He was involved in their global expansion efforts. And he was seen as the heir apparent to Honda-san when he finally stepped down just because of all of the amazing things he had done. He was an engineer. He designed F1 racing engines for the company. He was a pretty big deal. He was one of the most well-known executives in Japan. But in 1992, he developed a heart problem. He had to resign from Honda. He really did resign for health reasons. I mean, so often when they say so-and-so is resigned for health reasons, they didn't really resign for health reasons. They were just given the chance to leave because they'd screwed up. That wasn't Deary Majiri. He really had a heart condition that was threatening to kill him. So he had to step down from the company for his health. He started pursuing uh, traditional Chinese remedies and, and treatments once he had to step down, you know, for whatever reason. I'm not saying necessarily it was the Eastern medicine because, you know, that has its own issues. But for whatever reason, his health problems, his heart problems eventually were brought under control so much so that he no longer needed to stay retired and could look for a job again. Well, once you leave a company in Japan, once you retire from a company, they're not going to bring you back. It's just the Japanese culture. So returning to Honda was completely out of the question. Returning to the automotive industry wasn't. He started being uh, courted very heavily by General Motors to take over 
as uh, I forget exactly what he would have been president of, but take over as uh, I think a lot of their like European and international operations would have been the first time ever that a Japanese executive held a senior executive position at an American automotive company. So it would have been a really big deal. However, he began to have second thoughts because of the image problem, because even though it would technically not be a violation of any Japanese protocol for him to go to another company, another automotive company, it would kind of reflect poorly. There would be a real face problem there that he left Honda to join a competitor, even though he really had no choice but to leave Honda. He was trapped in Japanese etiquette here (laughs) uh, in a crazy way. So he started to have doubts about whether he really wanted to do it. And at that point, his friend, a friend of his named Koichi Hori, who headed an analyst group called the Boston Consulting Group that worked as a consultant for Honda, set up a golf game with himself, the president of another electronics company, and Hayao Nakayama of Sega. Now, before this time, Nakayama and Irimajiri had never met. This was... I believe in 1993, March of 1993. They had never met each other before this. Hori had taken it on himself to essentially play matchmaker between the two of them and to provide Irimajiri an alternative to going to another automotive company and all the baggage that that would have brought with it. He had the golf game with him. They got to talk to each other a bit there. And then uh, Hori afterwards, because Hori was friends with both Irimajiri and Nakayama, they just weren't in the same circles. He went to Nakayama and asked if he could maybe look after Irimajiri, who needed someone to look after him and give him an alternative here. So Nakayama took this under advisement. They met with each other, and they headed off, and Irimajiri decided that this video game thing sounded interesting. They were doing advanced driving games and simulators, which kind of played into what he'd done with Honda. I mean, he wasn't developing simulators at Honda, but at, at least they were doing stuff that had a little bit to do with some of the automotive things he had done. He was far more globally focused than Nakayama and far more consumer focused than Nakayama who was still more comfortable in the coin-op realm, so it felt like they might complement each other very well in that regard. In early 1993, Iri Majiri ends up joining Sega as executive vice president and is given a lot of power over things going on internationally and things going on in the consumer business because he's an executive that with Honda had a lot of experience with international and consumer business. Another reason that the Nakayama starts interfering more with what's going on in the United States is that Nakayama doesn't have full power anymore. He is delegated to middle management, and middle management is starting to exert more control. Iri Majiri has his own ideas about what to do in the consumer realm. The guy that he poached from Tomy is going to lead them into electronic toys and systems for children, most notably the Sega Pico educational system for young children. They've got the amusement park thing going, and there's a vice president in charge of that. The company is becoming more of a truly diversified, professionally run company. Nakayama doesn't have the same ability as he did when Kalinsky first made his many proposals about how he wanted the company and everyone disagreed in the meeting, but Nakayama could say, everyone disagreed with you, but do it anyway. 
he doesn't have that same power anymore because there's a whole new layer of management that is starting to have an impact. What does all of this mean for where we're going next? Well, what it means is the company is in a position where it's going to spend a lot of money on very ambitious things, but does not have as much money coming in because of problems that they're having in certain markets. And it means that they need desperately for the next phase of their consumer product to be very successful. Because even though the arcade stuff has continued to perform well during this time period, that's less than a third of a business. Of that $3.5 billion, CoinOp is about a billion of it. The other $2.5 million, that is consumer, and consumer has to do really well. So they're pinning all of their hopes on their next console system to fuel this expansion, to right the ship in America and Europe, to do all the things they're dreaming of doing. They're pinning all of their hopes on this next generation system, the Sega Saturn. One thing we have to remember about the video game business at this time, nobody thought 3D was coming. We look back at the next generation of systems now, the Sega Saturn, the Sony PlayStation, the N64. They are all systems that to one degree or another are dealing in polygons. But at this time, in the early 90s, people thought that polygonal systems in the home were still years and years away. However, there were two companies that did not believe that they were years and years away. One of those was Sony, where Ken Kutaragi was starting the project that would become the PlayStation and knew that the time for 3D had come. The other was Silicon Graphics in the United States, the makers of high-powered workstations that had been used to create the computer-generated effects in recent movies like Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park, therefore was getting a lot of positive press. Silicon Graphics CEO Jim Clark knew Tom Kalinske. So Jim Clark set up a meeting with Tom Kalinske to tell them that they had this hardware that they were developing and they wanted to get involved in the video game business. Kalinske set up a meeting in Japan with the engineers there who were led by Hideki Sato, who had been in charge of console hardware at Sega all the way back to their very first SC3000 computer and SG1000 game systems. He was the guy in charge of hardware development. It joined the company all the way back at the beginning of the 70s. He was one of their longest tenured engineers. Sato didn't like it. Hideki Sato, there's oral histories with him. It's very clear that priorities for Hideki Sato were that even though they wanted to have cutting-edge technology, they weren't like Nintendo, which was like, we'll make the Wii, which is basically the same as our GameCube, but now with waggle sticks, and so people will love it. He didn't believe in this idea of lateral thinking with withered technology that Gunpei Yokoi had very much instilled into the Nintendo ethos. Hideki Sato did very much believe that even if you're going to be cutting edge, you have to balance cutting edge technology, cost, and efficiency. This was true throughout his tenure at the company, and it's something he espoused in an oral history that he gave in Japanese. These three things need to be balanced. He looked at the silicon graphics hardware. Even though he could tell it was impressive, he did not think that they would be able to do it cost-effectively. He thought the chips were very big. When a hardware guy talks about chips being very big, he's not talking about, I don't know how I'm ever going to fit this chip on my motherboard. That's not what he's looking at. When it comes to chips, when it comes to silicon manufacturing, 
what you're doing is you are creating these huge wafers full of individual chips. Then you are cutting that wafer to create all of your individual chips. Chips, especially brand new chips, well, all chips, but it's especially important with brand new chips, have what are called yield rates. Basically, on a given giant wafer full of microchips, you're always going to have a certain number of them that just don't work because of imperfections in the production process. You get bad chips in the batch. The larger your chip, the fewer chips on each manufacturing wafer, the lower your yield rate is probably going to be because you're just making fewer chips and you're always going to have some of them go bad. The yield rates are always worse on a new chip than they are on something older because everything's new. The processes are new. You haven't fine-tuned your production process, your equipment, etc. So he saw this Project Reality chip. He thought that this was a big chip that was not going to be able to be produced cheaply, that they were going to have high failures and not have enough of them, and that means the price goes up, and he could not see the value in this chip. Besides, 3D wasn't coming yet anyway. So, of course, Jim Clark turns to Tom Kalinske and says, well, what do we do now? And Kalinske told him, well, there's this other company called Nintendo. That's the beginning of the partnership that creates the N64. That could have been Sega's technology, but instead it became Nintendo's technology. Sega, meanwhile, is entirely focused on creating the best sprite-driven machine, is focused on creating the best sprite-driving machine ever. What I mean by this is it can generate more sprites than any other machine before, with more layers of parallax scrolling background than ever before, with more particle effects and fog effects and all this fancy stuff on top of it, and you are going to have the greatest sprite-generating machine ever, a Sega Genesis or Super Nintendo on steroids. Fast, lots of sprites, it'll be great. Another thing that definitely defines Sato's tenure and maybe another reason that he rejected Project Reality, what became Project Reality, is that he also had a predilection for Japanese companies because he knew Japanese engineers were efficient. Efficiency translates into lower prices. Again, it allows you to balance cost and technology. This oral history of his, you know, it's, it's wonderfully insightful. Only portions of it have been translated into English because it's very long, but It's truly a phenomenal, it's given us a new level of understanding on a lot of what was going on inside Sega in Japan. These core philosophies of Sato come out very strongly in the entire thing. Balance technology with cost, and always do it in Japan if you can because the Japanese are efficient. That means that you're going to get more technology for a good cost. There you have it. They decide to work with Hitachi, which has a new dual processor architecture called the SH-2. There's a lot of older sources that talk about the Saturn and say that the second processor in the Saturn was added late in production or late in the design after other companies' consoles came to light. I want to put that to bed right now. That is simply 100% verifiably, definitely, in no way true at all. The SH-2 was designed to be a dual processor setup. And that is the chip that, from the very beginning, 1993, when they started development of it, that is the chip from the very beginning that they signed with Hitachi to use. It was always going to be a dual SH-2 processor. If people get nothing else out of this episode, 
take that one with you because there are a lot of older sources that get that completely and utterly wrong because they're American sources. They didn't have access to Japanese news reports and Japanese sources, and they just quite frankly guessed. Got that? I got that. I got that good. (laughs) Even if all the corporate stuff's too confusing, take that one with you. Okay, kids. Corporate stuff that we have been discussing and have our tireless cat minions working to figure out where all the corporate interactions are, who is talking to who, when, where, how. We don't care about any of that. We just care about what Alex just said there, which is that this dual processor thing is designed from the get-go. Everyone's saying that this is just a last-minute change where they added in a new chip to catch up with the other console makers. It's just lies and heresy. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Now, what is apparently true, though, is that when the PlayStation was revealed and the power of the PlayStation was revealed, Nakayama, to use the technical term, lost his shit. Remember, this is a guy that if he is going to be losing it, he goes all the way. He apparently reamed everybody in the company up one side and down the other. Why were we pursuing this sprite-based strategy and all of this when Sony over here found a way to do 3D hardware cheaply? Why did this happen? While it is not true that they added a second processor, it's pretty likely, though we don't have direct proof of this, that they did add a second graphics chip to the system when they learned about the PlayStation. Could it be the fact that the American sources are conflating the dual processor and the dual GPU? They very possibly could be. Because the Saturn very infamously has two processors and two graphics processors. The second graphics processor was probably added because they realized that now they needed to make a machine that could actually generate, uh, they didn't use polygons, they actually, actually used quadrilaterals, but could generate geometric solids for three-dimensional video game graphics. It was always going to have a little capability for geometric solids, but it was, its focus was going to be entirely as a sprite machine. Adding the second graphics chip allowed it to be more of a geometric solid. I can't say polygonal because they didn't use polygons, but a geometric solid driving machine that could do three-dimensional graphics. However, trying to balance game load across two CPUs and two GPUs was an absolute nightmare, especially since, remember, this is in a period of time when even high-end PCs, probably not high-end workstations, but high-end consumer PCs were still driven by single-core processors. I would argue that even now most programs don't take advantage of multiple cores. But remember, we're talking about games. We're talking about games. Games take advantage of multiple cores all the time in both GPUs and CPUs. So today you'd be like, who cares? You're basically just talking, and I'm oversimplifying, but you're basically just talking about having four cores. Who cares? Well, back then you didn't balance load across multiple cores or multiple processors, even in high-end computer game applications. GPUs were just barely coming in in high-end PCs. CPUs were definitely just single core. This was a radically new way of doing business. It was all thrown together very last minute, at least presumably with the addition of the second video chip. So this was a very difficult system to program for. 
Sony had a system that on its face would also be somewhat difficult to program for. Still, it just had one CPU and one GPU. It didn't have multiples. But they created a full library of APIs, application programming interface, in order to abstract most of that development. Remember, again, this is before Windows 95. This is before DirectX. This is before APIs were a big part of programming games either. You mostly did, in all previous consoles, you programmed in assembly language. You didn't abstract it. You didn't have APIs to intercede between your code and the hardware to do all of the common calls and functions. Sony went out of the way to make their console super easy to program for with all of these APIs. Sega had a last-minute rush job balancing multiple cores, multiple processors with no real help from software to get a handle around all of this. Then on top of all of that, Sony went with a low royalty rate that was based on the reality of the cost of CD consoles, whereas Sega, even though they were using CD in their new console as well, they didn't adjust the royalty rates or adjust their licensing fees to reflect the fact that CDs are a lot cheaper than cartridges. So Sony had a console that was easier to develop for, was cheaper to develop for, and it's Sony, so you know that they're going to put a lot of marketing muscle behind it. It still took Sony a lot of convincing to get developers on board. They had a real struggle. We'll do a Sony episode someday where we cover all of that. But still, at the end of the day, developers in Japan and later the United States, but first in Japan, flocked to Sony, abandoned Saturn. Some of Sega's close allies made games for it, but they just didn't have nearly the support. It was difficult to program, and it wasn't in many ways as good a system at doing 3D as the PlayStation was. Saturn was, as we know, very much a failure. One of the things that had the most long-term ramifications with Saturn is that because Sony was coming and because they were scared to death by Sony, Japanese management decided that they had to launch first, that they had to beat Sony to market. If they were going to have any chance of defeating Sony, they were going to have to build a loyal install base before Sony, the new kid on the block, could wow consumers with their technology. They knew it was coming, and they were scared to death, and so they ordered Tom Kalinske in the United States to scrap their original plans to launch the Saturn in fall 1995 and launch it in the spring instead. Before third-party developers that were signed onto the system had their games ready, before they would be able to manufacture enough stock so that all their retail partners could have systems. So Kalinsky decided that if he had to launch it early, he might as well make a big splash. So at the very first E3, he decides to make the dramatic announcement that the Sega Saturn is already available at four retail partners in the United States. He thinks he's going to steal the first E3 with that, and then Sony comes up and announces the price, $299, of the uh, PlayStation. So he doesn't even win the press conference vis-a-vis Sony. They launch the system before they have enough stock, before they have enough games for it. Certain retailers like KB Toys that did not get advanced systems started dropping Sega hardware and not carrying it anymore in retaliation. It was a huge mess. Then when Sony came along with their organized, well-run launch with lots of games at the end of 1995, that was it. Early the next year, Tom Kalinske resigns. He was kind of getting fed up with the amount of interference 
that was now coming out of Japan. He was frustrated with the Saturn, and of course, sales weren't going well. The company was not doing great with all of that. Tom Kalinske leaves. Nakayama and David Rosen resign as co-chairman of Sega of America, in part to take responsibility for this situation. I believe the marketing VP resigns as well. It's just they kind of clean house on U.S. management. I mean, some of them were ready to leave anyway, but this was kind of a defining moment where all of this goodwill, all of this great stuff they had done on the Genesis was thrown away on the Saturn. And I think as much as anything, it was thrown away because they were worried about costs. They were worried about finances. Because they were so worried about costs, they were scared to death of Sony. They didn't think that they would be able to make as big a marketing push against Sony, wouldn't be able to spend as much as a big company as Sony because they were already starting to hurt financially. 1994, while they still made a profit, their sales were down. For the first time in 12 years, they brought in uh, less money than they did the year before. So it was kind of a dark time, and then they misread the market in terms of what the next generation of hardware is going to look like. They misread the market in terms of what their licensing and royalty fees should be. You put all of these things together, and they completely crash and burn with the Saturn system. The Saturn does okay. They just launched early, which I think is just a major nail in their coffin there. It might have been a different story or potentially a major different story if they had kept to their original time schedule. If they did not annoy their partners, their developers, their retail things, all those relationships by releasing early, they might not have been super successful and they may have still failed. However, it would not have been the unmitigated disaster that it turned out to be. Exactly. As a result of all of that, the system's just a failure. It does okay in Japan at first, because Virtua Fighter, which was never particularly popular in the United States, but Virtua Fighter, the arcade game, was very popular in Japan. The latest iteration of it was exclusive to Saturn. So Saturn sold very well out of the gate in Japan, but once the PlayStation established itself... They were done in Japan as well. They had to keep writing off Saturn inventory for several years after that. They were still writing off Saturn inventory because they could never get sales traction. It was an absolute disaster. Their profits start to collapse. In 1993, they turned a profit of 288 million yen. In 1994, like I said, their profit went down for the first time in a long time, but it only went down a little bit, 232 million yen. In 1995, their profit was half what it had been in 1993. It was 140 million yen. And then in 1996, with all of this additional difficulty in the U.S. and Europe with the Saturn not taking off, their profit was just 52 million yen. Their sales are also going down in this period from a high of 229 billion yen in 93 to uh, 169 billion yen in 1996. So their sales are going down as well, not nearly as steeply as their profits. Their profits are where they're really losing. So all of this that uh, we've talked about up to this point sets the stage for the final true collapse. We're going to bring in everything that we've talked about, the corporate intrigue, the technology situation, the problems in the American branches, all of it into this one final disastrous period of time centered around the Sega Dreamcast, or rather just Dreamcast, because they decided that the Sega brand had been so damaged by Saturn that they did not use the Sega name very much in, in Dreamcast advertising. They just called it the Dreamcast, not the Sega Dreamcast. 
So we have Dreamcast here. So who's going to be the Freddy Krueger who comes in and becomes the nightmare <laughs> that tears this thing apart? Well, I think Sega. <laughs> I think everybody at Sega. <laughs> it's it it gets uh, it gets pretty bad. So at this point, when Tom Kalinske steps down, Shoichiro Yamajiri, who is already the executive vice president of Sega Enterprises, with remember a focus on international and on consumer stuff. He becomes the new president of Sega of America. He remains executive vice president in Japan. He becomes the new president of Sega of America. Then they hire a veteran named Bernie Stolar, real video game industry veteran named Bernie Stolar, to be head of product development and third-party relations at Sega of America, basically to be the man on the ground rebuilding things after the collapse of the Saturn system. Stolar started in Coinop way back in the early 80s. He had briefly worked at uh, Jack Trammell's Atari Corporation, uh, was in charge of electronic entertainment and uh, marketing of the Atari Lynx. He became the VP of third-party relations at Sony Computer Entertainment America and was part of the team that launched the PlayStation. Now he is making the jump to Sega to be in charge of all third-party relations and product development at Sega of America. Soon after, he would be promoted to chief operating officer and take control of all of the day-to-day activities of Sega of America, with Iri Majiri still being uh, in charge. Stolar is another person that Sega people in the United States, Sega fans in the United States, get mad at because they think that his comments related to the Saturn doomed the Saturn. There was an interview that he gave in one of the trade magazines where he said, the Saturn is not our future. He said this before Dreamcast had been announced, and so people were like, he cut the Saturn off at the knees because, you know, people might have still bought it, but after he said it wasn't the future, there's no way anyone was ever going to buy it now. But in point of fact, that gets blown out of proportion, too. It gets misquoted. It was part of a larger interview. Earlier in the exact same interview, he said that they would continue supporting the Saturn, but that a new system would be coming along within a couple of years. And it was at that point in the product cycle where you'd expect a new system to come along after a couple of years. Bernie Stolar did not kill the Saturn. The Saturn was good and dead for lots of reasons before Bernie Stolar was ever hired. If you take away nothing else other than the fact that they didn't add a second processor late in Saturn development, the other thing you should take away is that Stolar didn't kill the Saturn. It's blown out of proportion. It's basically misquoted. Not to mention that we just spent 15 to 20 minutes explaining how the Saturn just died. (laughs) Right. However, he did lay off a lot of people at Sega of America, refocused them and got them ready for whatever the next generation of hardware was going to be. What exactly that next generation of hardware was going to be was very much in a state of flux. You have our three personalities now that are mostly involved in the running of Sega of Japan. We have Nakayama, the CEO, who is a very forceful personality but doesn't have as much control as he used to. You have Ogawa, the chairman, who usually doesn't get too involved but sometimes gets sort of involved. And then you have Iri Majiri, who's become kind of the third leg of this unstable tripod, the executive vice president, the guy that really knows the consumer business, the guy that really knows the international business that has been tasked with turning Sega of America around and has been tasked with being a big part of this uh, console development. In 1996, a group of nearly a dozen 
top-level Sega executives had a meeting in Shibuya in a conference room and laid out a plan to create a new video game console that would rescue the company. They gave it the code names alternately of Black Belt or uh, Katana. Just this idea of a new lethal weapon or a new impressive weapon that could wipe away the humiliation of the past several years and bring Sega back to the top of the industry. The idea was that they needed to get something out before anyone else did, that they needed to beat Sony and Nintendo to the next generation and have something that could gain serious market share before the other companies got in and something that they could ride back to glory. You have to remember that they're a company at this time with faltering finances. They need to restabilize things, but they can't get too carried away. They don't have the financial resources of a Sony or even a Nintendo to do it. As per usual, Hideki Sato in Japanese R&D is the one that is going to uh, be overseeing this. He starts putting together a system based around a chip from NEC, from NEC. Meanwhile, though, Iri Majiri, who is running the United States and is also tasked with doing a lot of things with home console stuff, commissions a completely separate team in the United States of IBM employees to put together a specification for a console as well. They put together a console specification based on the PowerPC, a chip that was being created by Apple, Motorola, and IBM to take on the Wintel Alliance that ended up being in a lot of uh, game consoles later, actually, as well as a graphics chip from 3DX, which was the hot new company in 3D graphics accelerators for computer systems. You have Sato's system, which is based on another Hitachi ship, which I didn't mention, the SH4 CPU, and an NEC graphics chip versus this design from America that uses these two American chips. It becomes a knockdown, dragout brawl within the company. Hideki Sato is absolutely furious at the idea of using these American chips for the same reasons that we've discussed before. He's comfortable with Japanese companies. He believes Japanese companies are more efficient. He believes Japanese companies are more cost-effective. He worries that the 3DFX chip is too big. The same excuse that he used for the Project Reality Silicon Graphics chip. He says that if we're going to have a system that balances technology and price, we have to go with these Japanese companies that we know and that we understand and that can work with us. Iri Majiri on the other side is saying, absolutely not. These chips, these companies, these are global leaders in their field. These are companies that understand what the Western consumer wants. The West has historically been where we have had our greatest success. We want to go with these companies and their new and reliable and good chips, even if that's a little more expensive. This is how we get back on top. It actually falls to Asao Okawa to break the tie. Nakayama's in the meeting too, but they have a big final meeting with the four of them, with Irimajiri, Sato, Nakayama, Okawa, and it ends up being Okawa that has to break the tie. Okawa basically makes the decision, according to Sato, he says, Sato failed with the Saturn. But, and this is kind of a very culturally different thing between the Japanese and the Americans, he says, because Sato failed, he has learned his lessons, 
he will put his full effort into this new system. Therefore, we should let Sato have his way to redeem himself. He shot down Iri Majiri's proposed PowerPC 3DFX system. This is going to come back to have major ramifications. This isn't baseball where you can let the pitcher work out a kink in pitching for a few innings. (laughs) This is a company, not something where you lose a game and still be okay. This is a company where if you fail multiple times, this is especially true in the video game space, you die. You become a dead company. Exactly. And as we're going to see, this is going to have major, major ramifications. Meanwhile, at the same time all of this is going on, where they're having these fierce debates in 96 and 97 about what this console is even going to look like, losing valuable time to fine-tune the creation of the console because they're spending so much time arguing over chipsets and varying plans. Because of the deteriorating financial situation, the company decides to pursue a merger with Bandai, the toy company. They see some real synergies there. You know, Sega's arcade business is strong, but its kind of home business is becoming weaker. Bandai has a lot of intellectual property, a lot of distribution channels in consumer products because they're a major Japanese toy company. These two companies decide that they are going to merge into one company. It's a completely done deal. They finish the negotiations. They announce that they are going to merge. Everything is happy. There's going to be this new big company called Sega Bandai Limited. Bandai was basically going to be acquired by Sega because Bandai at this point was doing even worse than Sega in some ways. At the last minute, it falls apart because unlike in American companies and Japanese companies, I guess, I mean, I'm not huge up on this, but at least in this case, They had to get the support of middle management, of employees of the company as well, for this to go through. Bandai's middle management absolutely revolted. They refused to go through with it. I think they'd heard about, uh, well, first of all, the company was going to be devoured by Sega, so it was going to be Sega people running it. I don't think they liked the idea of their storied company being overrun by Sega people, but I also think they probably knew about Nakayama and knew about his management style and did not want to be part of an organization that was run the way Sega was run. So at the last moment, the deal falls apart. They have to call off the merger. Hayao Nakayama, who has been the president and CEO of Sega, well, president since 1983, is forced to step down at the beginning of 1998 from the company to take responsibility for the failed merger, you know, to save face for the company because it was such a horrible, disastrous embarrassment that the merger that they had already announced and already agreed to had to be called off. At the beginning of 1998, Nakayama steps down, and he is replaced by Iri Majiri. So now Iri Majiri, or Iri Majiri, I don't know exactly where the emphasis is, now Iri Majiri has control of the company. He's the new CEO. But he's had disagreements with Okawa, about what direction to go. You know, they had the big fight over the Dreamcast development, and it was Sato versus Iri Majiri on how to do it, but Okawa was the one that broke the tie, and Okawa sided with Sato. So there's a big disagreement between these two guys with how to proceed. Now Iri Majiri, instead of being an executive VP with Nakayama in between them, is a direct report to Okawa. 
now that Nakayama is gone, and now that there's a guy that he doesn't have full confidence in running the company, Okawa starts interfering with the day-to-day operations of Sega in a way that he never has before. This is a period of time when Sega goes and starts doing all of these experimental things. They start getting involved in these various networked gaming ventures. They make a deal with Microsoft to put Windows CE on the Dreamcast, which nobody ever used. They're making these weird business deals left and right. They almost make a deal with Electronic Arts. Most of this is people bypassing Irimajiri and going straight to Okawa and whispering in his ear, we should try this, we should try that, and Okawa deciding to do that. Okawa is not a super huge believer in the hardware business in the way Nakayama was. Nakayama is a guy that came up through the arcade. Okawa is a guy that came up with his computer services corporation creating custom solutions, software solutions for business clients. So he likes the idea of exploring services more than hardware, going in with partners to do this service and that service and this and that. It's kind of a dilution of focus that the company doesn't need at this time, and it undermines Irimajiri's authority to get anything done at the company because a lot of people are bypassing him. It also seems like they're getting ahead of themselves and getting into an industry that is still four to eight years off. Mm-hmm. Services don't really seem to get in until around then. Exactly. They start having fights about everything. They argue about positioning. They argue about price. They have arguments about should we launch into Japan first or in the U.S. first. Okawa and Irimajiri start arguing over everything, every little thing to do with developing this console and positioning this console. Irimajiri believes that they need to have a really strong marketing position. And he starts hiring new people in with a kind of marketing focus, including many of his old colleagues from Honda. At the same time, Okawa starts bringing new people into the company from Nomura Securities and other friends of his that are in the financial sector. So Irimajiri is trying to push for greater emphasis on marketing and positioning. And Okawa starts focusing more on bringing costs under control because during this whole time period, the company's in real trouble. Now we're in the recession of the bubble economy. The arcade operations are actually holding up surprisingly well during this time period. Their arcade operations are doing okay, but this whole virtual reality theme park thing has never taken off. Arcade revenues are kind of flat. They're growing a little, but they're basically flat. The amusement arcade thing that was Nakayama's dream to become the next Disney, that's gone now just never really takes off, and now the economy is stagnating in Japan. The bubble economy is collapsing. The consumer division is continuing to go more and more in the tank because Saturn is just dead. Now you have Irimajiri trying to pull something out of his hat to reverse this at the same time that Okawa has basically no faith in hardware and is basically about cutting costs, cutting costs, cutting costs. You know, there's a side of me that wonders that if they didn't push for the Saturn to launch so soon even though it might have still failed, they still have money coming in and they wouldn't be so panicky at this point. It's possible. I mean, that you know, what-ifs are always tricky. They certainly did them no favors launching it early, that's for sure. PlayStation would have almost certainly still ultimately prevailed as it did in Japan, where they were on more even footing with each other. But yeah, they might have put up more of a fight. It might have given them a chance to build up more of a following before Nintendo came along, because Nintendo launched very late 
in 96 after both Sega and Sony had launched. So Sega could have still had some lead time to maybe build up against Nintendo, but instead Nintendo came strong out of the gate with Mario 64 and any final chance that Sega had to do anything with the Saturn was dead the moment the N64 and Mario 64 appeared. Can't put a finer point on it than that. There's this real power struggle within Sega. At the meantime, Bernie Stolar is doing everything he can in the United States, but he's kind of caught up in the middle of this as well. He has his own way that he feels things should be done in the U.S. He's brought in a hot marketer from Reebok named Peter Moore to head up marketing. He buys visual concepts to make sports games in the U.S. because sports games have always been very important to Sega's U.S. success, but ends up alienating electronic arts in the process because electronic arts, which is going to be very important to the console success in the U.S., as it was important with the Genesis, they're having lots of success on Sony systems. They don't believe that a next-generation Sega system is probably going to do right. that well. So they refuse to publish on Dreamcast unless they can be the exclusive sports brand on Dreamcast, the only people publishing sports games on Dreamcast. Bernie Stolar has just bought Visual Concepts to make sports games for Dreamcast. So he can't do that. He's already bought a company. So he says no, and Electronic Arts says thank you, but no thank you. After all, this is Electronic Arts. They are known as the sports company. (laughs) A very important third party in general as well. And so not having any EA games on the Dreamcast at launch is going to be really bad. Then Sony announces the PlayStation 2 They promise it's going to be the most amazing thing you have ever seen in your life. Half the things they promise about the PlayStation 2 when they unveil it never come to pass. But that's not the point. The PlayStation was great. The PlayStation 2 is going to be great, even though it doesn't do everything they say it is. People know the PlayStation 2 is going to be great. Even if they half deliver on everything that they promised, it's still going to be done very well. It's going to be way better than the PlayStation 1. People can tell the Dreamcast is not going to be as good because they are launching early and they have to hit a certain price point. So even though their hardware is better hardware than the last generation of consoles, it's not going to be as good as Sony's hardware that's going to have a couple more years to cook. Basically, almost everything is against them. Everyone's arguing. Okawa and Irimajiri and Stolar, everyone's arguing. Stolar ends up getting fired right before the launch. Peter Moore becomes the uh, new president of Sega of America and is actually the president when they do the rollout. They're going to do the rollout on 9999, September the 9th, 1999, because that's a nice date. 9999. Really, they know that the PlayStation 2 is going to be coming. They have a head start. They have the head start that they wanted, and they're just going to have to push as much product into the marketplace as they can in this time period. Well, guess what? You know how I said that the decision to go with the Japanese companies was going to come back to haunt them? I'm going to guess that now is going to be about that time. This is the exact moment that Neck comes back and says, so you know that graphics chip we're making for you? Yes, I do. It's been really hard, and we're only going to be able to supply about 25% of what we said we were going to be able to. What the are those doing? (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, they backed the Japanese companies for their efficiency and cost consciousness. This time it bit them. 
going with 3DFX, which would fall apart a few years later, but at this time was the premier chip company for graphical processors and already had proven graphics processing technology that they could relatively easily adapt to the Dreamcast architecture. They went with NEC, who was promising a fancy new chip. The yields were low. They were just slow ramping up production. They had a, it had a trouble development cycle and yields were low. I don't know about you, but back in the day, I bought a card from them. Oh, yeah. Specifically, the really, really good card, the Voodoo 3. Absolutely. They were the kings. That card was fantastic. I remember slapping down, I think, 100 to $150 for that thing. Exactly. But because Sato was not enamored with an American company and its larger chip and didn't think it would be cost-effective and efficient, and because Okawa decided, well, we got to let Sato have another chance. Now, when they need to be building up market share as fast as they possibly can, they're not going to have as many consoles as they were supposed to because of the hardware they chose. Big whoops. So the Dreamcast launches, $9,999. It has a good launch. Sega very much touts that it is the most successful launch in history of entertainment based on how much money people spent. That was deceptive because this was kind of the beginning of the idea of pre-order culture that we have today. Not that other systems before the Dreamcast weren't available for pre-order. This generation of hardware was kind of the first generation of hardware where you had this idea of building up all of the hype to launch day and trying to get the majority of your sales through people pre-ordering your system as opposed to lining up at shops the day it released. It was somewhat deceptive. It was the biggest launch in history, but it was partially the biggest launch in history because it was, in a way, the first launch of its kind. After that very successful first launch, sales very quickly failed to meet targets. People were waiting for the PS2. They weren't going to buy an underpowered Dreamcast. They were having the supply chain issues. They were having the yield issues. They weren't able to put as much money behind it in terms of marketing and whatnot because of Okawa meddling more and more and insisting, no, we have to be cost conscious through all of this. And a lot of Sega's middle management starts leaving the company in disgust as Okawa and his friends start exerting more influence over the company, which deprives them of even more expertise that they need at a critical moment. Finally, Iri Majiri himself is forced out of the company. He resigns officially to take responsibility for the lower-than-expected sales of the Dreamcast. That's the official reason, but really, he resigns because Okawa has been fed up with him for a long time and forces him out of the company. That happens in 2000. In 2000, Irimajiri is forced to resign. He is replaced by none other than Isao Okawa, who has completed his transition from chairman who didn't really interfere all of that often in the company to CEO of the company in addition to chairman. They just bled executives and support staff left and right because of this infighting. They just lost all this money because of this infighting. It's just pure and utter chaos with this company. You know, this is speculation again, but I think that Okawa, to all accounts, was never particularly interested in the hardware business. 
and this makes sense because he was a software guy, as we said, but Nakayama was incredibly big on the hardware business. Nakayama was such an incredibly forceful personality, and Nakayama also had a history with the company that predated Okawa's purchase of the company, that I don't think Okawa felt that he had great permission or great ability to interfere with what Nakayama was doing, especially since, on the whole, the company was very successful in the 80s and early 90s. Once Nakayama was forced out over the failed Bandai merger, I think Okawa probably, and this is speculation, but I think Okawa probably felt he had a greater ability at that point to interfere with Sega and influence Sega than he had before. Because he was never big into the hardware side of things, they were kind of predestined to fail there because he wasn't providing the kind of support that they needed to keep hardware going. Iri Majuri was trying to do what needed to be done to keep things moving forward, but Okawa was just undermining him and undermining his staff. You know, finally, everyone was gone. They were doing terribly, too. I mean, the other part of the reason why Okawa felt that he had a greater mandate or a greater capability to interfere with what was going on with the company is that things got pretty dark as the Saturn continued to fail and they had to continue, remember, writing off Saturn inventory and the Dreamcast did not do the kind of business that they needed to write the ship. So we're talking about a company who had fallen to a low of a profit of just 5.3 million yen in 1996. In 1997, it went up just a tad, but it was basically flat, 5.5 million yen. In 1998, they lose money for the first time. They take a loss of 43 million yen. In 1999, they take another loss of 42 million yen. In 2000, another loss. In 2001, they take a loss of 51 million yen. They start losing tens of millions of yen every year because the Dreamcast has not sold. By this time, the arcade industry in Japan is going through a rough period as well, so they can't even rely on that to kind of help bail them out. Okawa, at the same time, is dying. He is dying of lung cancer. So he's taken control of the company, and he's dying as he does it. He's kept this a secret. Because he is worrying about health issues, he's not giving the company the proper attention that it needs, and that's probably adding more problems. Right, and and they keep it a, a secret. People don't know that he's sick, but everything is completely falling apart. Okawa does get them out of the hardware business, just to kind of summarize the next couple of things that happen. He knows he's dying, even though he's keeping it a secret. And so he donates all of his stock in the company back to Sega. He just gives it back. This gives them just enough financial ability, just enough financial wherewithal that they can exit the hardware business and transition to the software business and survive as a company. If he hadn't made a gift of all of his stock back to Sega. Sega may not have survived. It may have gone belly up during this period. I agree. Sega very likely would have. Okawa dies in mid-2001. He has a succession plan in place before he goes, though. 
Hideki Sato takes over as president. You know, he backed Sato on the Saturn. He backed Sato on the Dreamcast. He's favoring that part of the company over other parts of the company. He makes Sato the longtime R&D head, the president of the company. Though the main power is a new vice president, Tetsukayama, who's brought in from a job placement company called Recruit. Kayama becomes the chief operating officer. Sato's kind of the figurehead on top to kind of keep the Sega tradition alive. Kayama is kind of the the person that's really running the day-to-day. They work to bring software development under control. They'd had a lot of problems with software developers making games that they wanted to make but weren't necessarily big sellers. They had a lot of problems with missed deadlines. Software development was kind of out of control, and so Kayama was working to try to bring that back together. CSK was still very unhappy. Okawa gave back a lot of his shares, but CSK still controls 22% of the company, and CSK is still not happy with performance. Yosiji Fukushima, chairman of CSK, who takes over as chairman of CSK from Okawa, he continues to clash with the people at Sega. There's one thing that's very clear that comes out of all of this. Even though they're able to transition to uh, third-party software development, CSK is not going to want to continue to be involved with the company. Sega is going to have to find itself a new parent company to keep going. So in effect, Sega has to merge or be bought out by someone. And CSK is going to insist on it. It just so happens that Isao Okawa was a longtime friend of the head of Sammy Corporation, Hajibe Satomi. Sammy Corporation was in the coin-operated amusement business. They were primarily in pachinko. They did make some video games, but they were primarily a pachinko company. So CSK began pushing for a merger between Sega and Sammy. Sato was basically ordered to do this thing. But Sato was not very happy at the idea. Nobody in Sega was happy with this idea because pachinko and video games are very different things. Sega felt like it was a video game powerhouse, a technology company powerhouse, and they would really be lowering themselves to be purchased by a maker of pachinko machines, these cheap gambling devices. Sato starts negotiating at the same time with Namco in secret because he would much prefer to be purchased by Namco, a fellow video game company, a fellow coin-operated amusement company that felt like it would have a lot more synergy and be the right kind of people, so to speak. These negotiations are going on simultaneously in 2003. Flash forward to 2003, Sega's arcade business is picked up again a little bit, which is keeping them going. But their transition to third-party software so far has been a disaster. Their titles are not selling. They need a merger partner right now. Sammy is ready to pull the trigger in early 2003 until they learn about the negotiations with Namco. And they are furious that Sato has been negotiating with Namco when they had a deal all but done with Sammy. Sammy calls off the merger talks. Then Namco because they're fed up with the way that the merger talks have been drawn out and the way Sato's keeps saying, you know, we'll do this, we'll do this, but never closes with them, Namco immediately afterwards pulls out of merger talks. So the entire merger thing blows up in Sato's face as well as all the other failures. 
Exactly. The entire merger thing completely blows up in April 2003. That is it for Hideki Sato. Sato has to step down basically in disgrace on that one because he completely screwed up all the merger stuff and they desperately need a merger. CSK is furious because CSK wants the Sammy merger because of the close personal connections. CSK is furious too. Another CEO takes over, Hisao Gucci, another engineering type from within Sega. Once the dust settles on all of that, Sega and Sammy start negotiating again because, you know, the bad man that did all of these things is out now. Let's come at this fresh. And so finally, in October 2004, Sega and Sammy merged to create the Sega Sammy company that exists today. You know, that all stemmed. I mean, the whole reason Sega couldn't continue is because of the losses that they had on the consoles. That's that. That's the story. As I said, it's a bit convoluted. There's a lot of shenanigans between corporate people fighting each other, but it's a story that hasn't really been told in the West before. You know, it's the story of a group of executives, each of which had their own strong personalities, each of which had their own idea of the best way forward. It just turns out that, in general, the ones that had the worst ideas about how to go forward were the ones that kept winning the fights. And uh, that's a big part of how Sega fell, though that's not all of it, because quite frankly, it would have taken a miracle even if they were better run once Sony got in, because Sega had nowhere near the financial resources of either Nintendo or Sony. So once another well-funded company joined the fray, they were probably dead in the water anyway, but the management fights certainly didn't help and, and may have very well hastened the demise. Instead of a gradual crash and burn with a sell-off of property, it's just a constant downward trajectory Hey, Sato, can you uh, help fix this problem? You can? Go over here? Okay, good. We can do that. Sato, we're still going down. We need to fix this. Okay, wait, wait. We got to fix it. Sato, we're still going down here. Just merge with these other people and get us back up here. Sato, you messed up the merger. Someone else take the helm. Yeah, and I mean, you know, not to rag on Hideki Sato too much because he was also a very good engineer and he was the leader of of the team that put the Mega Drive out there, the Genesis out there as well, that was very successful. They just couldn't hack it when it got to the more advanced consoles with the uh, the polygonal stuff. Clearly, things that had worked for Sato in the past just weren't working as well in in the new reality. But uh, that isn't to say that he wasn't also responsible for a lot of Sega's successes as well. He wasn't just responsible. For their failures. To me, it really seems like he was elevated above the level where he would really excel. He's a great engineer. He made a great console and everything, and he could probably continue to contribute towards that. But having him on a management team and making decisions to direct the direction of the company is leading to so many problems that he was beyond his competency. As the Peter Principle in action, they all had their faults. Nakayama didn't know the consumer business well enough. Ira Majiri probably didn't know the video game business well enough. Okawa didn't know the hardware business well enough. And Sato didn't know the business business well enough. (laughs) And so you put it all together. (laughs) So you have this interesting dichotomy of not knowing that leads to disaster crazy going on. Yeah, that's another side to the Sega collapse. Most people talk about it in terms of systems and technology and, and whatnot, but There's a look at the collapse of Sega from more of a management and a business perspective, which is not the one you normally see. 
and a description that I think is much more apt and really exemplified why the company went down. Mm-hmm. Since that wraps up our dreams of what Sega could have been, we can now dream about the holiday season and what we might want to cover in our next episode. Yeah, I mean, you know, the next episode will be December 15th, so it's it's the one that's closest to the holidays. Last year we did do a very special holiday episode, our listeners may recall. There aren't that many interesting holiday stories really involving video games, but one other that certainly does come to mind is Holiday 1985, when a small number of individuals in one city in the United States of America were privileged to, for the first time, buy for Christmas a new system called the Nintendo Entertainment System. So I think another very special holiday episode. It's a subject we have obviously talked about before in the context of larger issues. I think that what we can do for this is to focus in, really focus in, on just that test market, just that one event in history. Have a very special holiday episode on the launch of the Nintendo Entertainment System in the United States for the Christmas shopping season in 1985. So I get to relive my childhood next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the themes that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 